We are going to go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 14 today. We're going to be picking up in verse one. We're going to get through the entire chapter. It begins with the first phrase of verse one <laughs> at that time. <laughs> I just realized I'm like, I, why did I do that? It's, you know, when you're reading your Bible, it's like there's things we don't pick up on. And, and this is the author's way of telling you what, what he's thinking as he's going. And so at the beginning of chapter 14, he begins, with says at this time, and you just pass right over that. Well, at what time? At the time we were just at last week, how many of us forget where we were last week? Amen. It's just verse 53 of chapter 13, where Jesus in Nazareth, he can't do any miracles because everybody has unbelief around him. And so he's gone back to his hometown. He, they're like, Hey, we're familiar with you. We know who you are. Aren't you the son of Mary? Isn't your dad a carpenter in town or your brother and sisters around here? And he couldn't do any miracles around them because of their unbelief. And so it's at that time. That's just a, it's just a time marker at that time is when all this takes place that Herod, the tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus verse two. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why the miraculous powers are at work in him for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him into prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, obviously this is going to be a lot of fun real quickly here, but if you remember back in chapter 11, it, we just have this snapshot that Matt gives us Matthew. Sorry, excuse me. Familiarity with the Matthews um, that Matthew gives us. He's John the Baptist is in prison and we don't know why he's in prison. He's just in prison and he's kind of having a crisis of faith. I believe it seems like he's in prison. He's wondering what's going on. So he sends his disciples to go to Jesus and say, Hey, are you the one or should we ask for another? And we've already gone through this whole study. I'm not going to go through it again. And his disciples Jesus tells us those, the disciples of John the Baptist is, Hey, look at what's going on. And he quotes Isaiah and says, go tell him what's going on. The blind see the lame leap, right? All this type of stuff. And, and he goes back and, and, and talks to John, but it doesn't say anything about why he's in prison. Well, Matthew kind of comes back to it a couple chapters later, because there's a context here as he's talking about Herod and he lets us know why uh, uh, John is in jail as part of a subplot of the story. And so it was, it, it was at the hands of Herod, the Tetrarch. That's who threw him in prison. Herod, the Tetrarch also called Herod Antipas. How many of you have studied the Herods in the Bible? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I've spent hours and hours doing this and it's, it's actually quite, quite fun. They're messed up. Um, <laughs> to say the least, but it's just a cross section kind of like of America, I, I guess. So Herod, the Tetrarch is, is, was one of the Rome appointed regional uh, rulers in Israel after Herod, the great, which was his dad, I guess uh, his dad died. Herod, the great was the guy who was around at the time of Jesus's birth. He wanted to kill everybody who did, was a master architect, all that stuff. He died. Well, Rome divided up the area that he ruled his kingdom there in Israel. That was under Roman control. He divided into four, into five different sections. And I'm not going to get into how they got combined and all this type of stuff. But basically some of those sections were given out to his sons, three of them, actually. You had Herod Antipas, which is Herod, the Tetrarch. Tetrarch means ruler of a quarter. 
And that's that's what that means. And I know there were five parts, but it got combined. He was OK. Anyways, the Harrys are a lot of fun. He's ruling a quarter of the part, uh, uh, a quarter of the area there. Uh, and he's he's actually ruling to the west of Galilee. So that would include the area of Capernaum. Well, his brother, Philip, he's ruling the other side of the lake, which is on, on the other side, it's kind of Gentile ish type lands. And then his other brother, just for a short time, ruled the Southern area of Judea and Idumea, which has Jerusalem and Bethlehem and all those major cities in it. And he was such a bad ruler. They got rid of him and they reinstalled Pontius Pilate. That's where Pilate comes on the scene. Okay. So there's just, there's a lot there. But when it says Herod, the Tetrarch, it's referring to Herod Antipas, one of the, one of the sons of, of Herod, the great. And you could spend all day doing this. I go into detail, more detail on this. If you really are a nerd and you want to go about this in, in my study of Mark and Luke. And so you can have fun with that. And I drill down into these things, but verse three tells us why John was imprisoned by Herod Antipas. It was because John told Herod that his marriage to his brother, Philip's wife, Herodias, that should tell you her name is Herodias um, was unlawful. So Herod Antipas, his brother, Philip, <clears throat> I can't, I don't even want to get into all this. Okay. Uh, his, he's married to someone called Herodias. And by the way, Herod, the word Herod means hero. So, I mean, hero, the great Herod, the great, that's like you, you're crazy. So her name is Herodias. It's just a female form of Herod. It is actually Herod Antipas's half niece that he's marrying. So there's just all this weird stuff going on there. He takes, so, so they're at some family event somewhere and they meet, you know, as relations. And then, so Herod Antipas likes his brother's wife, which is his half niece. And they ended up leaving his brother, coming together and they get married. And John calls him out on this. He says, it's not lawful. And by the way, just because people get married and do things doesn't mean that it's marriage in the sight of God. People do all kinds of stuff today and call it marriage. And, and, and John sits here and goes, yeah, you're doing that. But guess what? It's not in the sight of God. It's unlawful. And what's the response of Herod? Oh, you're so right. You're so, you know, gosh, man, I was so wrong in doing what, in what I'm doing. You know, no, it's, you are so close minded. You are a Herodophobic or whatever it is. And the result of John declaring God's will in the matter was both that Herod and Herodias wanted John dead. That's the result. That's the reaction in the human heart. When sin gets exposed is either you confess you hide or you attack. And this is what he did in the man of, as a man of power, verse five. And although he wanted to put him to death, this is Herod. This is his, this is the response. They grabbed him. They imprisoned. Although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they had held him to be a prophet. And so this is a politician through and through. He wants to go ahead and grab them. Uh, he and his wife, they don't like what the, he's calling them out publicly and they imprison him and he wants to put him to death. But what you find here is that he feared the people because they thought him to be a prophet. John the Baptist, although he hadn't been doing any miracles and stuff, he had been viewed in many people's eyes as possibly the Messiah. And people are wondering, is this the Messiah? Cause he had such authority and power and he spoke. 
God had anointed him for that purpose. And others were saying, Hey, is this an old Testament prophet raised from the dead? Uh, is this Elijah? These are the things that the new Testament and the various accounts are, are, I'm just kind of throwing them all into one thing here are saying this guy, John. And so it wasn't as if some guy on Twitter said, Oh, you know, you're, you're bad. It was a major prominent figure within society who was held in regard by the people as someone who had spiritual authority. He was saying, Herod leader, you are in sin. This is not lawful. And that leader takes him and he puts him in prison and he doesn't kill him because of the fear of the people. You see the thing here. And also he ended up liking to talk to him. One of the other gospels said, although he didn't want to do what he said. It's kind of like Paul's situation, but verse six, he verse six says, but when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised uh, that he promised with an oath to give her what she might ask for. So Herod, uh, at his birthday party, uh, all the nobility in, are there. And so the other gospels, uh, Mark 6, 21 talks about all the command military commanders are there. All the leading men of Galilee are there. All the important nobility is there. And so it's a big party and you know what happens at parties. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on there. So there's all kinds of debauchery going on. And under the direction of Herodias, which is his wife, her daughter danced before them. And you understand the nature of what's going on there when she's dancing. And Mark says that she pleased Herod and all the guests. So they're seduced by her. This is on purpose. And so much so verse seven says that he promised to give an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So he's at a party. He's got all this peer pressure around him. He's made bad decisions. He's got this weird situation with his, his niece dancing in front of him and all, or his great niece. I have no idea what's going on here, except for nothing ever good comes out of these situations. Marrying your brother's wife, imprisoning a prophet of the Lord. Not good. Don't do those things. Having a way of life where your brother's wife's daughters dancing in that way before everyone getting seduced and then making grandiose oaths in that state of probably altered state of consciousness. It's just, it's just bad. So he makes this promise. I'll give you whatever you want. And then the puppet master pulls her strings behind the scene. Verse eight prompted by her mother. She said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the King was sorry, but because of his oaths and, and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Verse 10 says something about the company you keep and the counsel you have and the power of peer pressure. You know, it's not like, Hey, kids, you know, peer pressure. I mean, peer pressure is real. Think of the decisions that we are as Christians are forced to make when we're surrounded by people who don't know the Lord are being forced to agree with or disagree or consent to. And we find ourselves systematically slowly in ourselves in a situation we never thought we should be in. There's a compromise here in this man's life. There's a compromise in the person he married. He was led by his lust. There's a compromise in the position he had, the family he had, all these kinds of things that were going on. And it led to destruction eventually in his own life. But it says there in verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in prison. That's disgusting. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. What kind of people are these? 
people. You've heard the head on a platter. This is what it is. And, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus totally, utterly heartbreaking. This happened to our brother. Why? Because he spoke truth. He spoke truth to sin. What was John's message to the, to the people? What was John's, the heart of his message? Repent, turn. It wasn't rub your nose in it. It was turn, turn from your sin, turn to God. And this shows you the depths of the human heart's reaction to the word of God towards our hearts. Sometimes I've done it. Anybody else said, I'm not listening. There's no way I'm listening to you. Forget it. I'm doing what I'm doing. And you just need to be quiet. Kind of a thing. You know what I mean? It's just with, it's sad, but it's within us. Well, this was obviously on a government scale here. Sad Christians face this today as they are all over the world, just proclaiming Christ being light and darkness and the darkness does not like the light. So they snuff it out and we hear about it all the time. Voice of the martyrs, all these other groups that share about how our brothers and sisters are dying. You know, in China, a few years ago, they were bulldozing a bunch of churches and a pastor's wife, you know, they, they started to come and the bulldozer started to come and there was a pit and she just stood in front of them and said, no, you know, and the guy who was in charge of the crew just said, go. They pushed her into the pit, put dirt over her and her husband, her husband, the pastor kind of somehow climbed out. I guess he wasn't as deep, but just don't care. Snuff it out. In verse 13 says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there into a boat to a desolate place by himself. He'd been planning to withdraw, but people had kept coming to him. Hence, we're going to see it doesn't make a difference. They keep coming. But I think he withdrew in those times to pray, to seek God, to seek the heart of his father on what to do, where to go, just to share with him. So he withdrew to a desolate place by boat to be by himself. But when the crowd heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So Jesus often withdrew from the masses. This is kind of his habit. We'll see this all throughout the scripture. He's always withdrawing from the masses to get alone, to pray, to spend time with the Lord and with his disciples. There's a time for that. But the people followed him. And this sets up one of the most memorable miracles recorded in the new Testament. I think even people who don't know uh, this, um, you know, I mean, don't know of Jesus. They kind of know of this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. How many of you know of the feeding of the 5,000? Most all of us, right? It's recorded in all four gospels. And so what happens is verse 14. It says, when he went ashore, as he's trying to get away from everybody, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Isn't that cool? He just lost his cousin. 
by the way, John the Baptist there. He's uh, trying to get away, trying to be alone. And yet there's masses of sheep around him. And what does he have upon them? You dumb sheep, leave me alone. I just need some me time. How many of us are guilty of that? What did he do? He had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. He went towards them. So the compassion of the Lord upon them, like sheep without a shepherd, the other scriptures say, Jesus fed them and he tended them. He was teaching them and he was healing them. Obviously he wanted to be alone, but compassion ruled the day. You know, Jesus isn't too tired for you. Jesus isn't too busy for you. He isn't in an undisclosed location where you can't get to him. We are to come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need. You have access to God this moment through the blood of Jesus Christ, through faith in him access right now. That's amazing. And he has compassion in his heart and love for sheep in need. Anybody in need this morning, anybody need help? He's there. He had compassion upon them, healing their sick, verse 15. And now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go into the villages and buy some food for themselves, right? I love how the disciples inform Jesus of everything. They, they're awesome. Hey, they tell him the time. They tell him the place. They tell him the situation and they tell him what to do. Isn't that awesome? Any of us done with God? Hey, this is a desolate place. You know, the day's over. Uh, Thank you very much. You know, send the crowds away so that they can get food. How many of us are that way with God? Like I've got this. I just want to let you know what's going on. And I love how they do that. And I think I can relate to that. And this is a cautionary tale, um, which is interesting. But verse 16, what did Jesus say? They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Don't you love that? He wanted, they wanted to send them away, but what does he say? They don't need to go anywhere. You feed them. Now ready. 5,000 men, not including women and children. You feed them. Jesus says 12 guys wandering around the wilderness with Jesus. What do you, do you think there's a problem there? Yeah. At this point, Mark's account in chapter six, the disciples response is, shall we go and buy 200 denarii's worth of bread? A denarii is one day's wage, 200 days wages worth of bread. They're going, shall we go spend 200 days wages worth of bread to what are you talking about? You feed them. We don't have that kind of money. And from that, Mark 638, Jesus says, go find out how many loaves and fish you have. He sends them on a little journey. Go find out what you've got. Show me your resources. Muster up the best you can. Here we go. Go get it. And what do they do? Andrew, right? The other gospels talk about that. Andrew goes out and he finds the little kid with the loaves and the fishes. Sunday school. Amen. And then 
They come back and they come to Jesus. They said, Hey, we only have verse 17. We pick him back up here in Matthew. We only have five loaves here and two fish. They didn't have enough money. They didn't have enough bread. They didn't have enough fish by a long shot. Jesus was showing them what they had in their account and what he was calling them to do. Listen, church, God is often going to call us, call you to things that you cannot do. Now, why would that be? Just think for a second. Because when you can do it, who gets the glory? You do. And you become self-sufficient and self-reliant. And man, it's a danger of building a church like that. Even in this, like the building project we're doing, you know, you don't want to be stupid and go, Hey, let's, you know, God's given us a vision for a tower, you know, and all this weird stuff that people do. And so we just have faith and it's just this weird, dumb faith. You know what I'm talking about? It's nothing to do with the Lord, but there are things that God calls us to in life where we only have five loaves and two fish. It's there's a, there's a deficit. There's a deficit of love in our heart. There's a deficit of time, of energy, of talent, of treasure, of ability, of opportunity, all these types of things that are in front of us. And we look at that and we look at our account and say, we can't do this. And we move on. Anyone else? And I, I weigh these things. Like when we're looking at the building thing and we're looking at at things, I I look at it and I go, I don't want to be dumb Lord. But at the same time, I don't want to look at and go, I have five loaves and two fish. And therefore, Lord, don't you know the place we are and the time we're in, what you need to do. Anyone else? I mean, that's just one example, like of church thinking of church things, but think of our daily lives of what God would do for you. Oh, I want you to go minister to these people. Oh, but I don't know the word and I don't have this and I don't have that. Moses tried that stuff. God came back to him and said, don't you know who gave you your mouth? And if you're not careful, you get an errand. Right? So they didn't have it, but here's what he was also teaching them. Not only what they had, but what to do with that gap. Verse 18, he said, bring them here to me. You only have five loaves and two fish. Give it all to me. Put it in my hands. Put all you have in my hands. And they gave it to him. And then Jesus started working verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Mark, Mark tells us that it isn't just sitting down on the grass. He ordered them in groups of 50 and a hundred. Jesus orders them out. There's an organization to God's mind. He works in certain ways. God's a God of order. And here they are in green grass, like shit, uh, like sheep. And this should trigger our minds to Psalm 23. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. This is why we bless our food. Why the people needed to know where the provision was coming from. And there's a bigger picture here. I'm going to come back to it. But 
The people needed to know where this was coming from. This was a work of God. And I can't help think again of Psalm 23, the opening verses, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters and he restores my soul. A bunch of hungry people out there. The Lord sits them down. He's going to feed them. Verse 20. Well, verse 20 and they ate and they were satisfied, right? Stuffed. They couldn't eat anymore. And these were hungry people. I mean, thinking of things that are happening in the Philippines right now and just flooded waters and people just, they just don't have enough to eat. You know what I mean? Real tragedy real things going on, the things in Turkey. The world doesn't have the safety nets that, that we do as Americans. And we just take so for granted and are entitled to in so many ways. They're a blessing, but I'll tell you what, these were hungry people. And what happened to them? They were all satisfied. How much were they satisfied at the end? Verse 20, the second half of it. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over one basket for each of those guys. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. So people estimate, I don't know. Most people probably had families, probably had some people with them. So what between five and 10,000 people out there, that's a lot of people. You feed them with what? And here Jesus takes what they have. And I don't know how he did it. And he multiplies it to where they all were able to eat. And there was leftover 12 baskets. And I can only imagine the disciples as they are at this point, each of them having their own basket of fish and bread filled to the brim. They're just marveling. (laughs) Wouldn't you? You're like, what just happened? You see God's desire to do things through us. He wants to do it to where he gets the glory and we share in that glory. It's best when he gets all of it. Amen. Amen. When he uses us in such a way that we do our good works, that they glorify our father in heaven. You know, Jesus wasn't teaching his disciples about how to be self-sufficient. How many of you have had that pushed into your mind? You need to be self-sufficient. What a lie. It doesn't mean we don't carry our own backpack that God has called us to carry. We all carry our own backpack. Amen. Nothing wrong with hard work. All of those things are good, godly virtues. Amen. Amen. And they're lacking. But at the end of the day, he wasn't teaching them to be self-sufficient. What was he teaching them to be? Christ-sufficient. He is going to do what he calls me to do. It's not going to be in my mustering of all my armies, my power and my organizing and all the things we like to do as Americans. It's going to be simply trusting and obeying and walking after the Lord and watching him work. I think we undermine, I undermine 
the Holy Spirit so much when I try to substitute what only God can do. Anyone else? You're doing it. You're mustering it all up and all this kind of stuff. Now it is us and him and I, it's the mystery, but they were to trust him. That's what he was teaching them and to watch him work. He would multiply. He would divide. He would break what was needed. And they simply needed to hand out what he had given them. That's what he was calling them to. And you can see the foreshadowing of what's actually going to happen. That this isn't about bread and fish in baskets and physical stuff. What's, what's going to happen to them? He's going to be broken. And if you're reading John in John chapter six, what does he say on the heels of this? The next day, he says to the people who are following him again, as he's trying to go be alone, he says, you're seeking after me because I gave you food and I'm paraphrasing because I'm skipping around in John six, but he then tells the people, listen, your fathers, your forefathers, they ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But I am the manna that comes down from heaven. I am the bread of life. Anyone who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has real life. And they could not get over the physical. They were looking for the physical bread. And he was trying to make a point. Listen, you're going to come back hungry with the physical bread. You need something that will satisfy your soul. And when you taste of the son of God, when you believe upon him, his death and his resurrection and his life becomes your life, you are satisfied thoroughly with baskets left over. This is what the human condition needs. This is what the heart is longing for. This is what God has made us for is to know Jesus Christ. And he came down and he bled and died that you would know him fully. And his arms are open wide this moment. But what keeps us from that is our hardness of heart and our unbelief and our sin. And the spirit is calling and just saying, Give me what you've got. Come to me. I'll take care of all the the things, the deficits. I'll take care of it. Come to me. Jesus was teaching these guys to trust him. And so too with us, the Lord is calling you to something that you cannot do in and of yourself. And you might be in the exploratory phase right now where he said, what you got? And you're coming back. I got five loaves and two fish or two fish and whatever it is. Put it in his hands. Put it in his hands. And by faith, go about what he has called you to do and watch him work. You will have enough. And the bigger picture here again of the feeding of 5,000 is that John six, Jesus is dialoguing with everybody and he comes to them and says, listen, I was, I'm going to be broken. My body's going to be broken. And these disciples were responsible for preaching the gospel, for giving Christ out to the world, casting the seed onto people's hearts. Did they receive it or did they not? That's the picture, the gospel. Jesus is the bread of life. 
So the human heart longs for satisfaction and God made his son to be that greatest satisfaction for us. And so turn from the things, those things and pursue God this morning, turn from sin, pursue God. You'll find that he was pursuing you. (laughs) It's beautiful. Give you life. Verse 22. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So right after the miracle, they wanted to make him King. The other gospels say, and Jesus like knows this. And he's like, okay, I don't know. He said, guys get out of here. And he departed and went up on a hill and he, he got away from them. He's on the hill at night. And verse 23 says, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to pray by himself. And when the evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land beaten by the waves from the wind that was against them. So Jesus can see, you know, uh, how many, you know, obviously sometimes when it's windy around here, it's, it's clear skies. And so too on that Lake and how many of you ever had been on a, 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 a river or somewhere where you're in a boat and you're trying to go against the wind. It just, yeah, I used to surf a little bit in California and the wind would blow a certain way or the, or the current would be a certain way. And you'd find yourself just going against it. You'd always have to fight against it. And so these guys were at night. They're all there. They're trying to do anybody been called by God to do something. You find out it's difficult. Go to the other side. You get in the boat and they just, okay, I'm rowing. I'm going to the other side. I'm going to the Seda. And what happens? They're not getting very far. And sometimes doing what the Lord calls us to do is difficult and they're stuck in the middle. And Jesus is watching the whole time. So know that Jesus knows where you're going. His eyes were on the disciple. He might not have been present in the boat, but guess what? He's watching and he's mindful of them. And so verse 25 in the, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Fourth, the watch is like between three and 6 AM. So early. So it must've been a moonlit night. And Mark tells us that Jesus was going to pass them by. He's walking on the water. Okay. This tells you that Jesus is just not an ordinary guy. And that's the point of him recording this, that you need to know that Jesus is not your flannel graph. Jesus. That he's God. He's Lord over creation. And he's walking on water. And he walks through this storm and walks, he's going to pass the boat. But verse 26 says he's going to pass them. He's on pace to pass them. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. And you can imagine the terror that gripped their hearts. How many of you have gone through an experience where your terror is gripping your hearts? There are no better words to hear. I think this is one we need to underline in our scriptures and put in our hearts. Take heart and desire. Don't be afraid. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He repeats these things a lot to them. Jesus lets them know it was him. He isn't going to let them stay in a state of fear. How many of you are fearful right now and in situations that are fearful and you're doing what God has called you to do. You're being a wife, you're being a husband, you're being a mom, you're being a dad, you're going to work, you're doing the things that God has called you to do, and it's just rowing against things. Jesus is watching. Don't fear. Don't fear. Trust him. And that's what this whole chapter is about, by the way. And I love Peter. He's one of my favorites. 
And there, we kind of make fun of him because he puts his foot in his mouth, but he put his foot in his mouth. Everybody. He actually said something and did something, even though it was super wrong a lot of the times and God had to continue to train him, but he had this heart that was for God. And he struggled with it. I think we can all relate with that. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, verse 28, command to me to come to you on the water. If it's you, call me to come to you. Jesus would always, that's the first words he said to him. Follow me. Come to me. He says, if it's you, tell me to come. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. Period for a minute. Peter got out of the boat and walked on water. Only two people ever done that. This guy's one of them. Pretty cool. Is it you? Allow me to be where you are, no matter what the circumstances are. That's the heart of a believer. I just want to be with you, Lord. No matter what the winds are doing, the waves are doing, what's going on around me, the difficulties of life, the hardship of the rowing. If it's you and you see him in the storm, it's like, can I come to you? And he says, come. And here Peter walks on the water, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was what? He had fear. He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, Oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? I have a feeling this is all in one swoop. They're out there. It's wind is going. You guys know what wind sounds like, right? How about on the water? Waves are splashing around all this kind of stuff. Peter's walking just immediately starts to sink as he takes his eyes off the Lord and onto the circumstances. And he's just Lord, save me. You know, <laughs> Lord's are, and he's pulling up. Oh, you have little faith, you know, and he says this over and over to these guys. He loves them. He loves them. What does he want them to do? Wants them to what? Wants them to believe in what? In him. What does he want their eyes off of? The wind the waves, the money they had, the amount of fish they had, the amount of bread they had. The moment he began to focus on the wind, fear took over and Peter sank. I mean, think about this in our relationship with the Lord. When we get our eyes, we're walking with him and things are, we're defying gravity. Amen. But we get our eyes off on things and what happens? We sink. We all sink. Amen. And what is the Lord? What is, what is something we can take away from here? When we're sinking, who do we cry to? Lord Jesus, save me. We put our eyes back on the Lord. Lord, save me. What does he do? He grabs you and pulls you up and says to you, what? Oh, you little faith. Why did you stop believing? Right? And we learn. Amen. It's a loving fatherly care for us. You got to keep your eyes on me. Come on, let's go walk back with me on the boat. And they walk back on the boat, right? You know, as we keep our eyes on and we live life, that's amazing. It's, it's, it's the loaves and the fishes again, getting multiplied. It's that stuff. But the moment we take our eyes off the Lord, it forces us 
we look on the world, we look on the circumstances, we look on the politics, we look at all this other junk that's going on, man, we start to sink. Listen, as believers, we are made for that walking on water life. Not saying everything's going to be a miracle. Just saying that there is something where our hearts defy the circumstances because our eyes are set upon him. Amen. Doesn't mean there's going to be difficult rowing, a lack of food, all this kind of stuff. It's just our eyes are set on him. And just like Peter, the Lord teaches us over and over to trust him. I love that as soon as Peter called out to be saved, Jesus reached down and grabs hold of him and pulls him up in the same breath. He gives him instruction. The Lord does the same with us. We know it's interesting that this is linked to the loaves and the fish. Cause if you read Mark's account of this Mark in chapter six, verse 45 through 52, you can check it out. Mark six, 45 through 52 and verses 51 and 52. It says, and he got them into the boat into, into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Isn't that weird? It's like, wait a second. It's connected to the thing before what's connected their hardness of heart. What was their hardness of heart? They didn't trust him. They didn't trust him in the loaves and fish. And yet God showed him graciously his power through that circumstance. Moves him on to the next thing. Go to the other side. They didn't trust him in that. He sinks. The hearts were still hard. See, God is not only saved you and I from the well, from the penalty of sin, but he's saving us from the power of sin. The practice of sin in our life. He's working with hardness of heart. He's, he's changing us day by day. If we let him, if we let him teach us, if we open up and say, yeah, Lord, okay. I was a little faith. Teach me, show me. How do I keep my eyes back on you? What do I do here? He'll teach you and you'll grow in your faith. Isn't it amazing to see people who have been seasoned in their walk with the Lord and they're going through just difficult times and you're just going, what in the world is up with you? I know you're going through it and I see cracks and all these things and there are difficult days and all that, but there's just a steadiness about them. Why is that? It's because they just keep going through this stuff with the Lord over and over and over and over and over and over. And they keep realizing you're it. You're all I've got. You, you, you're it. There's nothing in my account that can get me through any of this. You are my anchor behind the veil. How we need this. Oh, you little faith. Why did you doubt? Jesus says to Peter, put your life in my hands. Keep your eyes on me. I love Hebrews. What is it? 12 two? looking unto Jesus, right? The author and the finisher of our faith. How we must have, have taken our eyes off the Lord and our, we can just hear him say those words to us. Why, why did you doubt me about that provision? Why did you doubt me for my goodness? Why did you doubt me for my love, my protection and, all, and my guidance and all this stuff? Why are you doubting me? I've got you. Trust him. Entrust yourself to him. Amen. Verse 32. We're going to make it. 
And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Oh, we got a problem here. Jehovah's witnesses got these guys worshiping Jesus. What are they doing? Worshiping him because he's Lord. He's curious. He's curious over creation. He is God in flesh. They worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. They are marveling at him, even in their doubt and disbelief that God is going to train them in. They understand, wow, you are the son of God. Has ever God ever done that to you? You're sitting there and God just reveals himself to you and you go, wow, you are God, but you have no idea what the implication of that is. Anybody else? Yeah. That's kind of what's going on here. Verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent all around to that region and brought him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. What's going on there? You got a group of people who said, listen, if we only touch the hem of your garment, we're going to be healed. What's that? called faith. What did it start with? Unbelief, not believing, not believing, not believing, not believing God, teaching them to trust, teaching them to trust, teaching them to trust, teaching them to trust. And here we come to the situation where you got a group of people who just go, you know what? We know you are all that you can do all. If I can just reach out and touch the hem of your garment, you'll do exactly what it is that your will is. Just let me trust you. Do you trust them? Amen. He's teaching us church. He's teaching us to trust him. What are you going through? How much of that burden is on you to figure it out? I know we have to get up and brush our teeth and go about our day. Amen. He's not calling us to inaction, but how many of us are in that driver's seat? I want to see in the, sit in the back seat and let dad drive and just fall asleep. So to speak, you know what I mean? Lord, you, you, you know where my heart is with my kids. Use me, Lord, my family, Lord, you know, the brokenness of my life or whatever it might be. The, the gap between who I am and who I should be, all those types of things. So just lead me today, Lord. Lead me today. You are God. And he's got you. He promises it for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, we love you. Thank you for sending your son who not only demonstrated what it is to, to believe and to follow you, but he, he taught us and he he's, has taught us Lord through your word and your spirit is here teaching us now. You've never left us. You've never forsaken us. You are good to your word and you will complete that which you've began until that day. And so Lord, we pray that your spirit would convict Lord, our hearts.
where we are deceived and doubting. And I pray that at the same time, the sweetness of repentance would come about in our hearts as you reach down and grab us as we cry out, save me. And you lift us up and put us back into the boat and the winds and stuff cease sometimes. And it's just beautiful. Just lead us and guide us. You are the son of God. And in son of God, you are the one who died and rose again. And you are with us. Thank you, Lord. So all glory and honor to you. Father, we also want to thank you for opportunity for fellowship in the gem now. And we lift up the food before your throne and we just pray that you'd bless it as you multiply it before us. <laughs> multiply our fellowship and our love for one another and our care and concern and our hunger and our thirst for you in one another's lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all.